1 Corinthians chapter 8. And when I've had the opportunity to teach, I've been going through, and we've been going through 1 Corinthians. And as we go through this book, um, I really feel like the main meat of the messages is really how to be a believer. How to be a believer. You know, we hear so often, you know, are you a Christian? Are you not a Christian? You are a Christian. This is what you should do and what you shouldn't do. But I think this book, Corinthians, um, is a very good book, especially if you're new to the Lord or even if you're not. Um, It's one of my favorite books and it's one of the books that I went through early on um, in my walk. And the truth in it was stuff that I needed to hear because um, it has a lot of hard truths. It has a lot of uh, things in it that are, you know, you go, wow, that's happening in the church, or wow, believers would really think that, and yeah, you know, there's some messed up stuff in people's lives, especially in this day and age, and Corinthians addresses a lot of those topics very openly, very straightforward, and really gets to the heart of the matter in a lot of things, but tonight's message in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is entitled, uh, Known by Him, Known by Him. Uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they're both written by the Apostle Paul, along with the majority of the New Testament. Uh, The Corinthian church was really, it was a church in a large city. Corinth was a very big city in its day, and um, I think it was around 200, 250,000 people, which you think, oh, that's not too many. That's about Orange County, New York today, but 2,000 years ago, that was a big city. That was like New York or any other big port city. It was on an isthmus. They had these games called the Isthmus Games. Um, which were second and none to the Olympics back in the day. And uh, Olympics, you go now, ah, Bob Costas, Olympics. But the Olympics were the thing back then. And, and so they had a, a game sort of runner-up to that. Um, but they also had a saying, to live like a Corinthian. You know, oh, yeah, you know, you know Bob? He lives like a Corinthian. Or, yeah, you know, last week it was awesome. It was like we were in Corinth, man. That's kind of a saying that they had going on. You know, just like today we might have sayings for cities like Las Vegas or Amsterdam or Delaware, you know, not Delaware, right? You know, <laughs> nothing's going on in Delaware, but, which is probably a good thing. But I have a couple questions for us tonight, um, and maybe they'll make a little bit more sense once we get into the text, but what does it mean to know someone? What does it mean to know somebody? You know, you could say, yeah, I know the president, but have you met him? You know, you just know what the news says or what his policies dictate or what you saw on MTV. But do you really know him? And what does it mean to love someone? You know, oh yeah, I love that band. But you never met them. You know, you don't even know their last names. You don't even know their real names half the time. They all have these fake names. But how far do we go? And how far do we go to know someone or to love someone? And with that, what benefit really is knowledge? You know, our society says knowledge is the end-all, be-all. Get knowledge. Get knowledge. But really, what benefit is knowledge? You know, if, there, if it's something worth getting, if I'm going to spend my life pursuing something, you know, I'm only 32, but it's quickly becoming apparent that I'm getting older and dying. You know, I had another tooth pulled the other week, and I'm like, wow, that wouldn't have happened when I was 12. You know, my body is dying. All of us, 10 out of 10 people, unless the rapture happens, are going to die. That's a staggering statistic that we don't like to think about because then we won't be able to catch the next season of whatever TV show you want to watch or whatever new toy is coming out. But if that's the case, what benefit is knowledge? If we're going to spend our lives pursuing something, is knowledge the primary pursuit? Let's pray. I need it. I know you guys need it. So, 
Father, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, that, um, Lord, you're greater than any of us uh, put together, Lord. There's nothing we could do that um, on our own that's worth anything, Lord. And uh, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that you'd fill us with your spirit, that, God, you'd minister to us, and that, Lord, we'd really, we would hear from you tonight, um, because we need to. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's read the first three verses of uh, 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. James, am I on in the monitor at all? It feels like I'm getting feedback or something back here. I don't know. Maybe it's just me getting old again. Read 1 through 3. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Uh, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. You know, the first thing we see in these first couple verses is idolatry. Idolatry. You know, maybe uh, you can think of the Israelites coming out of Egypt um, in Exodus. Uh, they were freed from serving Pharaoh, and God brought them into the, into the desert. And when he did that, he gave them the Ten Commandments. I mean, you know, most of us know what the Ten Commandments are. And in Exodus 20, 1 through 6, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth, earth beneath, or that is in... You want to put this one on? There we go. Hey, can you hear me now? Okay, let's start. Let's start back. <laughs> All right, you shall have no other gods before me. God says to the Israelites, uh, "You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth." So nothing in the sky, nothing in the land. You know, no idols of jaws or anything. But you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon uh, the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. That's the key there. This isn't generational sin. This isn't God being mean. This is saying, if you don't want to be with God, then what else is there? But showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, sometimes we like to not think about the commandments, but the Bible's full of commandments. And guess what? The commandments outline life. The commandments point us in the right direction. But he says, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. And I say to you that what we worship changes our posture and changes our practice. You know, just like you might make an idol in the old days and bow down to it and worship it, when you have an idol in your life, you will bow down to it, and you will worship it. It will change your position. You'll no longer be standing. You'll be on the ground, or you'll be doing different things in order to worship this idol. You know, we tend not to think of idols this way in our day. You know, how many of you at home have an idol or a shrine? Don't raise your hand, because someone with the gift of exhortation will find you. But seriously, you know, we don't think of idols that way, yet 
I had friends in high school who came from other cultures who in their home had altars where they'd open the doors, there'd be an idol, they'd have candles burning, oh, sorry Catholics, and then you'd put things in there to that idol. I won't offend everybody tonight, so that's fine. You know, who remembers Indiana Jones? Right? You know, and he would always be chasing after the idol, and he'd like lift up the idol and put the bag down, and the ball, you know, not the ball, but the giant stone would roll after him. You know, and he'd always say what? It belongs in a museum. You know, a lot of times we think of idols as just those things we might find in a museum or you might find at our friend's house who's uh, immigrated here. You know, I, I think our modern idols can take on different ways. You know, maybe we'll see in advertisements or status symbols. You know, you're nothing unless you drive this car or you have this device, or you wear this brand of clothes, or you like this type of music, etc., etc. Again, because maybe there's an idol propped up somewhere. You know, in a lot of ways, idolatry is far more sinister in our day and age than it was back then. Why? Probably because it's harder to tell what's an idol and what's not an idol. You know, someone takes a big old Buddha statue and puts it in your living room and says, hey, bow down to this five times a day. You go, no way. God says, don't worship idols. And, you know, that takes up too much room. So you're not going to do it. But when someone sneaks something a little more sinister, something that doesn't say idol across the front of it, we might be a little more prone to worship it. You know, those people who get up early Sunday morning and go to the store and spend money to go wash their car every Sunday. Maybe it's an idol. You know, I, I appreciate a clean car, but how far are we going to go for these things? You know, there's a saying that the thief comes at night, you know, when we least expect it. You know, if we were expecting the thief to come, we'd probably be waiting at the front door for him, say, no, you know, you're not getting my slap chop or my, you know, whatever you want in my house. I'm going to defend you, but when you're out snoring, the thief's going to come in and take whatever he wants. You know, he might even put shaving cream in your hand so that you hit your face when you wake up and all your stuff will be gone. But that's the same thing with idolatry. It's sinister. You know, if it was that obvious, you'd be, no way am I going to worship an idol. No way. This is easy. But things in our day and age are very deceptive and very uh, hard to miss. I mean, you know what I mean. But what do we find our life in? You know, where do you find your life when, when you're down and out? Or when you need a pick-me-up, where do you go? Where do you go? Now, I'm not saying having an energy drink or you know, taking a nap is wrong. But sincerely, what is the thing that defines your life? You know, what is it that we seek to live by? That's our idol. That's our God, lowercase g. You know, unless it's God, it's an idol. You know, Luke 12, 15 and 23, Jesus says, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, uh, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Don't hear that one on TV. You know, and then he talks about the parable of the rich man, and he builds up these barns and builds bigger barns because he's got so much stuff. And then it says that his life is required of him, and he dies, and he's got nothing, and all the poor people come and take everything that was in his barns. You know, what good do those riches do to him? And Jesus says at the end of this section, he says, Life is more than food. And the body is more than clothing. You really wouldn't think that by watching TV these days. But if that's the case, if life is more than food and our body is more than clothing, but we still need these things, thankfully, I hope none of us are really hungry right now and everyone seems to be pretty clothed in here, which I'm very thankful for. Um, And you should be too. 
But God knows what we need. You know, if we would turn to him, we would have even our our most basic of needs met. You know, we won't get into it for time, really, but even then, you know, it's a real challenge because you read things about, like, the Apostle Paul or these other guys who were blind, you know, who were beaten, who were homeless, who were stripped of their clothes, who went hungry, who had all these physical needs, and yet they said, I have all my needs met in Christ. So, wait a minute. Maybe it's a little bit deeper here. Maybe it's a little bit deeper. But for tonight, let's just say, hey, God wants to meet our physical needs. You know, we see the value of life. You know, if we have the idolatry of money, we're seeking our own desires, maybe abortion is an option. You know, hey, i got to have my career. I'm not ready yet for this child. Let me go have an abortion. You know, in the, in the Old Testament times, there was this god called Molech, or the god Mammon. And basically, it was this little idol, or maybe it was a big one. depends on how much time and effort they put into it. But they would heat up his hands, and they would take their baby and place it on these burning hands and sacrifice this baby. For what, you'd say? For prosperity. For money. You know, I think it's funny that uh, our first lady goes to China and says, I'm not going to put human rights issues on the table when I go there. Why? Because America has plenty of human rights issues of its own. How many babies have we sacrificed? Over 50 million since Roe vs. Wade, at least on the books. And look at how prosperous our country is. No, we're in debt. It's done the opposite. You know, and that's, and that's really the case. I think we'll get into it later, but really idols bring death. But the true God, he brings life because he is life. But it says that we all have knowledge. You know, everyone in here knows something, I hope. You know, even if you can't tie your shoes, you probably know how to put the Velcro on your shoes. You know, even if you don't know how to drive, you knew how to get in touch with someone who does drive and you got here. So even that, we all have jobs or some level of education in the society, thankfully. So we all have knowledge, but I think a lot of times everyone thinks we know something that we don't know. Oh, yeah, I know how to do that. And then you go and you have to do it, and you don't know how to do it. I know that happens to me um, a lot, especially at work with programming or other things. It's like, I've done it before, but oh, yeah, i got to Google it to remember how to do it anymore. You know, Google's become my memory. But it says here that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You know, how true is that? That when we know something, it tends to feed our pride and tends to say, hey, I know something that you don't know. That makes me better than you or that makes you lesser than me. And, and how false that is, how false that is. But when we have love, we tend to build each other up. You know, love kind of trumps knowledge. You know, we may have knowledge of something, but when we love someone else, we're not going to hold that knowledge over their head. We're going to love them. We probably even share that knowledge with them because we love them. But, you know, knowledge tends to separate people through pride, but love draws people together through humility. You know, just look at society. You know, our society exalts knowledge over reason, wealth over wisdom. You know, not that it's wrong to learn, not that it's wrong to go to college, not that any of these things are wrong. You know, God has given us intelligence, and just because we're Christians doesn't mean we have to check our intelligence at the door. In fact, we should be more intelligent than the people who aren't believers. Why? Because we know the God who made everything. We know the God who created intelligent, who is the most intelligent being in the universe. 
But Romans 12, 3 says, For I say, uh, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Think soberly. And Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Man, that's a hard one to live by just on the highway. You know, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. You know, that's when you truly have knowledge and you truly have love is when you say, hey, I've got love and I've got knowledge and I'm going to put it to work for someone else instead of myself. You know, as believers, especially, we should love one another. You know, we're to hold each other up. Um, You know, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by what? By your Christian T-shirt or how many verses you know? No, by your love for one another. So we need to love each other. And how do we do that? By considering each one better than ourselves. And that's a very foreign concept. You know, our society is all about number one, about how much can I get? How much can I get? You know, how can I get the promotion over you? Or how can I make you look bad so that I look better? Um, and that's not what our lives should be like as Christians. And, and we all fall into it, and it's hard sometimes, especially over emotional issues or people that are close to us. But at the end of the day, you know, if we've been forgiven by God, we should esteem others better than ourselves. Why? Because God, who's greater than everybody, put together, stacked up to the moon ten times, came down to earth and said, hey, it's better for me to die for you guys than you guys to die for my righteous requirement. But he says uh, in verse 2, yet as you ought to know. So it's this idea of, hey, we all have knowledge, but none of us are quite there yet. You know, we're all still kind of freshmen here, and we think we're graduating high school, and yet we still only have ninth grade math under our belts. And probably most of us here only have that anyway. But, you know, because, man, anything after that just doesn't stick. Unless you're James Shanky in the back there, (laughs) because he's smart. But it says, yet as we ought to know, we are being made into the likeness of God. You know, as believers, you know, we get saved. We're saved. We're salvation. The moment we accept Christ and his forgiveness, we receive salvation. But we're not perfect. You know, I'm not perfect. Ask my wife. You guys probably a little more perfect than me. But none of us are Jesus. You know, none of us have done, can you walk on water? I can't walk on water. You know, science can't figure that out yet either. Um, but sincerely, we're being made into the likeness of God, and we have not arrived yet. So even if we have some knowledge, there's always more knowledge, you know. Hopefully, we'll be learning until the day we die, because that's what life is. Life is, is about learning, you know. It's good to learn new things. It's fun to learn new things. And I think that's one of the joys about having kids, is, especially my daughter Mia, is just seeing her learn new things. It's like every day I come home, she's learned something new. Something new is fascinating her, you know. You know, last week she started sitting on things because she's like a big girl. She knows how to sit. So that was her thing. So I don't know. I, f- I think that's cool. But <laughs> I think she sat on Destiny the other day. And like <laughs> but, uh, you know, maturity really is knowing what you ought to know and doing what you ought to do. Because a lot of people have knowledge. You know, you could say, yeah, you have book smarts, but you have no street smarts. Or, yeah, you might know all the lingo about a guitar, but, you know, when you stand behind the guitar and you go to play, it's very evident. You know, it's very evident. Especially in our day and age of uh, Google and TV and movies, everyone thinks they know everything about everything. And yet when it comes time for the rubber to meet the road, you really have no clue. You know, you go, oh, the movies were all wrong. 
You know, that's not what it's really like. But really, uh, we need to do as we as we ought to do as believers. If if we have the knowledge of God, we need to have the actions of God as well. Our lives need to to match up to our knowledge. You know, I think that's you know it's a blessing being a church that teaches the Bible all the time, or being in churches or in communities where we like to learn about what the Bible says. But if all we do is sit around and learn, and we never get up and do, you know, there's a problem. There's a real problem there. You know, we're not growing. We're, we're, we're spiritual couch potatoes. But verse 3, verse three this, is, this is a great verse. It says, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Known by him. And that's really the knowledge that matters. You know, at the end of the day, when we all die and stand before God, you know, what's the knowledge that's really going to matter? He's going to say, hey, how do you hook up monster cables from a DVD player to a TV? You're going to go, I don't know. Or you're going to have the answer. But that's not the answer that, that he's going to ask you. He's going to say, what did you do with my son Jesus? And Jesus is going to go, hey, don't even bother. I know him. I know them. I know them. That's the knowledge that matters. Do we know God and does he know us? Because a lot of people, you know, we can know things about God, just like we can know things about a celebrity or a sports star or an ancestor, but we don't really know them. In the same way, we can know things about God and, and not really know him. You know, one of Jesus' criticisms of the Pharisees was, in the scriptures, you search them for, you think, in the scriptures is where you have your life. But he says, no, you know, the scriptures point to me. I'm the one who's the life, Jesus says. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. You know, you, if you quoted the whole Bible to God when you got to heaven, but you didn't have that personal relationship with him, you'd say, it's rubbish. You don't know me. It doesn't matter because the whole point of this book is to know God, is to know him. You know, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, uh, blessed are those in pure in heart. Why? for they shall see God. You know, we're not going to see God just by reading the scriptures. I mean, yeah, you know, you spend time with the Lord and, and he'll speak to you and you'll see God in a way. But if it doesn't impact your life, if you don't allow the Lord to change your heart, if you don't seek his forgiveness and allow him to purify your heart, you're not going to see him as clearly. You know, a lot of times when we're confused about issues, it's because we're not seeing clearly. It's because we're not spending time with the Lord or the things that the Lord has told us, we're not applying or... All those sorts of things can kind of be kind of messed together, but God doesn't want us to be that way. God wants to see him clearly, and he's made a way for us to see him clearly. And it's not going to school for 10 years and then you'll see him. It's really getting on your knees for 10 seconds and saying, God, forgive me. You know, 1 John 1 says, um, I'm going to skip through this, Destiny, but it says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But, this is cool. If we walk in the light as he in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, it's saying that if, if we just say that we know God, but our life doesn't match up, we probably don't know God. We probably don't know him. You know, I think of the example of, you know, of nuclear radiation. If you were to go stand by a nuclear reactor, or somehow like Indiana Jones again, could survive a nuclear blast, you know, there you'd probably be radioactive. There's really no way to be around radiation, aside from like a lead cocoon, where you're not going to come away radiated. In the same way, if we spend time with God and we're truly spending time with him, we're going to come away a little radioactive. Like when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and when Moses went to spend time with God, guess what? He began to glow. And what did he do? He covered his face with a veil when he came down so that the people wouldn't freak out, and also so that they wouldn't see the glory of God pass from him. And that's sort of the same way as believers, you know. It's, it's really easy to tell 
um, you know, if we've been spending time with the Lord or not. I mean, maybe you can fool me, maybe I can fool you. But I know in my own life, when certain words come out of me, certain attitudes come out of me, or certain thoughts start becoming my process for the day, I can go, wow, you know, I probably haven't spent much time with the Lord, or I need to go spend more time with Him because what's coming out of me? Is it God or is it garbage? 1 John 5 2 says, By this uh, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. Now, I'm not saying be legalist, but I'm saying, hey, if God said something to do, and you really love him, won't you do it? Won't you do it? Just like if a friend asks you to do something, and you really love that friend, and you're really a friend for them, won't you do it? Or even your boss, you know, just because you want that paycheck at the end of the next week or two weeks or once a month, whatever it is, you're going to do what your boss says because you want a paycheck. And in the same way with God, if we really love God and respect him for who he is, if he says to do something, we should probably just do it. But knowing God is loving God. You know, God is love, and, and we really can't escape the two. You know, we like to compartmentalize things, especially as guys, you know, sports over here, family over here, work over here. But it doesn't really work that way in reality with God. Knowing God is loving him. Loving him is knowing him. You know, because if, if you really love God, if you've really been saved, you're going to want to know him. You're going to want to get to know him better. You know, I was thinking earlier today, you know, wow, my wife and I are coming up on two years of marriage and it's real easy to think, oh yeah, I know my wife, you know, we've been together for so long. And then it kind of struck me today, like, wow, two years really isn't that long. You know, we knew each other for a few years beforehand, but really two years isn't that long. You know, I should probably, you know, I need to get to know her better. Let me get to know her better. Why? Because I love her. You know, there's no test at the end of the week. You know, I hope not. Is there a test? (laughs) Maybe, if I remember that <laughs> anniversary date, that's a test. Anniversaries of birthdays, Christmas, and what's that other one? Valentine's Day. Those are the, those are the tests. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. You, you guys know if you're married. I don't know. I'm still, I'm still a newbie at that. But really, loving God is knowing him, and knowing him is keeping his commandments. But let's go on. Uh, four through six. Uh, verse 4, therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, a little bit of shifting gears here, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. You know, it says concerning the things offered to idols. You know, we kind of touched on it before about people bringing offerings to idols. You know, you might see it on National Geographic or if you travel to uh, foreign countries, you might see the markets where they have temples. And at the temple, they bring offerings to these idols. Now, you know, back in the day, um, you know, that's kind of what you did. You brought your, your, your sacrifices there. And you could get a good deal on the meat afterwards. You know, if you went and brought the meat and they sacrificed to the idol, obviously it's just a hunk of gold or a hunk of bronze or a hunk of whatever, you know, that's there. It's not going to eat the steak you brought them. So what does the wise temple keeper do? He goes, hey, I'm going to go sell that steak out the back door for cheaper, you know. Um, and it was a deal. So, hey, I'm going to go offer that idol. When he's done not eating it, I'm going to go get it for half price. You know, that's pretty smart in my book. Um I think today, you know, Walmart, you know, versus organic food. 
you know, everyone in here I think would love to eat all organic or, you know, Kobe beef where the cows like massaged and fed milkshakes and, and stuff, but it's like $100 an ounce or whatever it is for the beef. Um, my brother-in-law would know worry about that. But um, in reality, I don't know where I went with that. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe dinner's on my mind. I don't know. It's late, right? Walmart. Oh, organic. We can't afford. Thank you, guys. I knew Pam would be in this one. But uh, we can't afford it. I mean, if you can, have me over. But, you know, when it comes down to it, sometimes you're like, oh, well, i got to buy ramen noodles because that's all I can afford. You know, I would love to have that organic Kobe beef, but i got to eat, and that ain't happening, so let me go get a cup noodle, you know? And that's sort of the case here. It's like sometimes you just got to find a good deal on meat. It's nice knowing you guys. <laughs> but sincerely, you know, <laughs> there's only one God, and his name is Jesus. You know, it's not the Jehovah's Witnesses who knocked on my mom's door the other day. You know, there's only one God is Jehovah. No, it's, it's Jesus. It's Yahweh. It's Yeshua, God's salvation. And he's a triune God. But if that's the case, then the guy sacrificing the meat to the, the chubby Buddha statue, we know, oh, that's just some statue that they may even bought at Walmart and now they're throwing steak at. You know, so the deal was back in the days that the people were stumbling over this because think for a minute with me, let's tr- time travel, you know, without going 88 miles an hour, back to uh, these times. You know, you come out of a world where you're not saved and every week or, you know, you go offer to the idol and you'd be a good citizen and you'd go spend your money and bring, you know, the stuff that you made and offer it to the idol and like over and over and over again. And then one day someone tells you about Jesus and you get saved and you go, oh, I'm no longer a slave to this idol who doesn't answer my prayers. And now I'm with a God who's living who does answer my prayers. But now you go to the market and you go, oh, there's still these idols. There's still this bad taste in your mouth. There's still this in your mind, this knowledge in your mind that this idol is still an idol and you just worship a different God now who's not the same idol. And so when you go to the market, you go, I don't really want to eat that meat because it's tainted. It was offered to that idol. You know, and that was an issue with a lot of people back in the day. I think sometimes it's kind of hard to relate. But those believers who had knowledge knew that, hey, you know, I've been a believer for a while. I know that the idol is nothing. You know, you think of the stories in the Old Testament where the the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the idol's temple, and the idol falls down in the middle of the night, and the temple guys run up and put it back up, and then the next night it falls over again, and like the idol's completely smashed, and they, you know, they don't get it that real God's in the room going, <laughs> pushing the idol over, you know? It's not like that clown that gets back up. But these older believers are really causing their younger believers to stumble, saying, hey, I got this great deal on meat. You'll never guess where I got it. Idol Mart. And they're like, no, 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 no. It, idols were around that thing. You can't touch it. It's, you know, and we'll get into it a little bit later. But there was this real conflict there because of conscience, because of knowledge. You know, Isaiah 40, 18. You know, I encourage you to read Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 44. I'm not going to uh, read them for time. But, you know, they're really good. They're really good. And it's all about idolatry. You know, basically it says that God sits above everybody. And then the second one, I love it. It's like, we're as useless as the idols you make. You know, if you make an idol, the idol's deaf, dumb, and mute and can't move anywhere. And eventually, if you worship an idol, you're going to be the same way. You know, you're not going to move anywhere. You're not going to make any decisions. You're not going to do anything because your idol's not telling you what to do. But First John 4.4 4 says, 
Man, we got our scripture is so much better than everything else. It says, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know, ghost hunters, supernatural stuff, you know, all that stuff. It's not real. It's not grandma at the seance table. It's a demon, or it's the seance guy pulling a fast one on you. You know, we do fight a spiritual battle. You know, just to say that these idols are out there doesn't mean that there's demonic entities that aren't tied to it or that there's other practices that don't go on with it. I'm not trying to belittle it and say that there is no spiritual realm. But on the other hand, we don't want to be saying the complete opposite. Say, oh, you know, my car broke down. It must have been a demon in it. Or, you know, I tripped over something. I must have been tripped by a demon. No, you know, we don't want to over-spiritualize things. But we are in a spiritual battle. You know, we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers. But, like we read, if God is for us, really, who can be against us? If the God who's over everything, who made everything, is living inside us and has called us and has a purpose for us, what can get in our way? You know, it's just bumps in the road. It just maybe slows you down a little bit. But he says many gods and many lords. And he doesn't mean that there's many gods and that God is one God and you can just pick another God and we'll all coexist. What he really means is that there's many rulers, there's many spiritual powers, you know, that aren't God. There's also, you know, if you look up the word God in certain contexts, it was a judge. Because guess what a judge does? A judge sits in a place of God and he makes a judgment call. Um, there's many lords, there's many presidents, there's many mayors, you know. But look at all the different things that, that people worship that call God. You know, we hope in our politicians, we worship our uh, movie stars or our sports athletes or our business leaders or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, there are many things that people worship, even though these things aren't God, you know. The altar of the TV, the false prophet of the media. I'll leave it at that. You know, there's, for us, verse 6 says, there's one God, the Father. And for us, who's that? That's believers. If you believe in Jesus Christ tonight, which I hope you do, and if you don't, I hope to give you an opportunity to, um, because I'm sure God's given you plenty of opportunities. But for us as believers, we believe in the true God. You know, there's, it's the end-all, be-all. Once you found Jesus, really, once he's found you, nothing else satisfies because you realize everything else is fake, is a fraud. Um, you know, God lets it rain on the just and the unjust. You know, he, he pours out his blessings on everyone. He's not um, a picky God or a mean God. You know, he has rules that we need to, to listen to, and there's only one way to heaven, but he loves everybody. You know, he's not like the Muslim God who wants to kill those who don't believe in him and even kill those who believe in him. He's like, I'll just kill everybody. You know, what defines you? You know, what do we treasure, what do we measure, excuse me, our life by? You know, it's through God that, through whom we live. And we find true life in Christ. You know, John 10.10 says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. You know, when we have God in our lives, we all of a sudden have life. And it's so easy to tell if we start worshiping an idol or we're worshiping God. Because when we start worshiping an idol, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's drugs or whatever it may be, our life starts to fade. At first, it may seem, wow, this is great, fantastic. But after a while, you know, the road only leads to death. It only leads to you being strung out, left on the side of the road, broke, etc. But when we follow God, he'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And even if everyone else does forsake us, 
We always have God. We have that hope of heaven. You know, true life, again, it's found in God, in a living God, not in dead idols. You know, it's so true that these idols that we make for ourselves, they're dead. You know, I was watching, there's this, I won't get into it, but there's this funny video I was watching last night, and it just made me think of it. But really, none of us can create life. You know, we might have kids and stuff, and in some sense, we've had a role in creating life, but really, we were just kind of there, and God said, let life happen. You know, we couldn't really control it at the end of the day. And how much less if we try and carve an idol out of wood or we try and build something up in our lives that we can worship, that we can say, this is my idol. This is what I'm going to live for. This is all that's worth it in this life. It's dead. I mean, what did you make it out of? Dead stuff. But with God, he's living. There's no grave that we can go visit. You know, you might want to try and go visit the tomb of Jesus, but he's not there. You know, whatever you think about the Shroud of Turin, if it's his or not, he's not in it. You know, he's gone. He's in heaven. He's alive. So if God's alive and God's in heaven, where should we be looking for our life? Where should, be, where should we be running to? Is it to Mecca or is it to the New Jerusalem? You know, is it to heaven or is it to the mall? We'll go, I won't harp on that anymore, but let's get seriously. God is alive. What's that movie coming out? God's Not Dead? It's true. I don't need a movie to tell me, but I think it's cool. Read 7 through 8. Some people do. Uh, verse 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. So, not everyone knows what we know. Um, and I think that that's easy to forget. You know, I grew up in the church, and, and I didn't know the Lord, and I went my own way. And God rescued me from sin and depravity. And uh, he's brought me through many things. And for me, sometimes it's hard to imagine that people don't know Jesus or that the Jesus they know is not the same Jesus I know because even before I had a relationship with Jesus, I at least knew who God was and how dumb was I to, to go away and not go to him. But sincerely, not everyone has that knowledge. Not everyone has that knowledge, and we need to let people know. But let's go on. There's not uh, in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. But, this is a key verse, food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. You know, eating, it's a way we get together. I mean, how often do you go and hang out and eat with people? Usually it's like, if you're interested in a girl or guy, you probably go out and eat. You know, if you have friends, you probably go out and eat. You know, say, oh, there's nothing to do, let's go out and eat. Or, let's go home and eat. You know, it's always eating, especially in Calvary Chapel, those Every single event coming up is eating. You know, I should probably skip out on a few of those. But um, it's a way we get together. It's the way we share our hearts with one another. It's the way we feel like friends. You know, and you know your real friends if you double dip and they don't mind. <laughs> but even businesses try and capitalize on the power of sharing a meal. You know, sales meetings. You know, I, a lot of my family is in sales. And what do they do? They take out clients and they treat them to a meal or they take them somewhere. It's always about. Let's get something in their belly, and then they'll make a decision. You know, that's the one thing I miss about the cruise. Well, that's not the one thing, but on the honeymoon with my wife was when you go for the meal, they give you a bill that says zero dollars. Like when I go out to a meal, I want to pay for it up front because when you have to pay for your meal afterwards, it's like, oh my gosh, I have to pay for this now, and it's that much. <laughs> when you're hungry, it's like, oh, just take my money, give it to me. You know, like Esau. Uh, 
But if we look back at Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, we see a lot of these offerings. We see drink offerings, meal offerings. You know, we see Cain versus Abel. We see Noah. Um, priest, check this out. The priest ate the leftovers. Um, things that God said not to sacrifice so the priest could have food. You know, that's interesting stuff that in the sacrificial system, people would bring their sacrifices. But part of that way was God was like, hey, let's feed them. Let's feed the priest. And the priest kind of got out of hand and they started taking the best meats and it really turned people off. But, um, you know, that's what happens with it when we start worshiping other things than God. Uh, but this, this is one of my favorites. You know, I'd have to look it up and find out what it was. But there was a meal where you brought food before God. You offered half and you ate the other half. You know, you went and sat before God and said, hey, God, this half's for you. And the other half was for the person who was offering it. And I just think of that, you know, one for me and one for my homie. You know, <laughs> maybe it's just, sorry, is that, is that off color? I apologize. I think it's funny. I'll go laugh at home. <laughs> but I'm <laughs> sorry. Sincerely, if I offend you, I apologize. But it's true. God wants to have a meal with you. God is your friend, and God wants to hang out and have fun with you. Yeah, God is holy, and there are serious things about God. But, you know, God has a sense of humor. He made you. He made me. He made ostriches, you know. He has a sense of humor. He wants to have fun with you. You know, being a Christian is not boring following the commandments. It's, wow. It's life. It's more fun than I've ever had in my entire life, even when it's hard. Even when it's hard. You know, and we think of the one uh, really sacrifice or, you know, meal that we have as believers, really, that's, that's told for us to keep is communion. You know, what did Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. Eat the bread, drink the juice or the wine, and remember me. He says, hey, when you eat, remember me. Do this as often as you get together because he knows we eat. So when you go out and eat or you have a dinner, Feel free to do communion. Do communion. You know, we love meals in our society. You know, every holiday is about a meal. You know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Super Bowl, whatever. You know, like we talked about, that there were these believers who had sensitive consciences. Did I say that right? You know what I'm saying. But they had the sensitive conscience. And so... Other believers, like we talked about, were offending them by saying, hey, I got this meat here, I got this meat there. And we're going to get into the meat of this in a little bit. But we really need to be sensitive to conscience, especially your own. Especially your own. You know, we have freedom in Christ. And that's true. We do have a freedom to do a lot of things as believers. Um, You know, basically there's a saying that says, love God and do what you want. Now, if you love God, like we said earlier, you're going to obey his commandments. So loving God does not mean oh, great, I can go out and commit adultery, or oh, I can go do drugs, or all these other things that God says no are bad for you and are sinful. So that's not what freedom means, but now it means we're free to live. We're not free to, you know, we're not bound to idols anymore. We're not bound to these laws that would restrain us, but now we're freed from these laws that would, um, you know, encourage us and bless us. You know, now we're free to withhold from a lot of things that we just don't need. And this verse says, food does not commend us to God. And again, if you look at popular culture nowadays, what's the push? It's all about certain foods. It's all about whether you're a vegetarian, a vegan, or you eat meat, or you go to McDonald's, or you don't go to McDonald's, or you eat organic, or you hate Monsanto, or whatever it is. And not that some of these things are, aren't valid. You know, not that there's not food that's unhealthy for you, or that you know things that we shouldn't eat, or that we should eat, or things that are going wrong in society that would lead to some of these issues. That's not my point. My point is is that it doesn't make you a better person if you don't eat at McDonald's. You might be more healthier, granted, 
but you're not better spiritually. You know, it doesn't make you more holy. You know, think about the poor person who has no money and all they can eat is ramen noodles. Should we judge them and say, hey, you're poor, you can't eat good food, so God doesn't love you as much as me? No. If you're so rich and you have so much food, why don't you give the poor guys some food? So, I don't know who that's for. So, but, <laughs> but sincerely, food does not commend us to God. You know, we see in Acts, uh, Peter's hanging out before lunch on the, on the roof, taking a nap, and he has this vision of all these different animals that the Jew can eat, and God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, no way, I'm not doing that. And then God says, hey, hey, I'm the Lord, you know, you can do it, it's clean. You know, basically he's saying that not only are these laws not important uh, as a believer, but also that the Gentiles could now be saved. And we see that Jesus says in Mark 7, um, I'm going to skip through this one, uh, Destiny, but it says, there is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. You know, you can eat that McDonald's and you won't be spiritually defiled. You, you may be sick later, but you're not spiritually defiled. You know, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. You know, if you're eating a nasty cheeseburger and you just have kind words for everybody all day, you're fine. But if you're eating the most, and this is kind of funny, you know, if you're eating in the most expensive restaurant with the tiny little dishes and, you know, you've got the greatest food, but out of your mouth comes all this filth and garbage, you know, who's really the one who's in better shape? You know, to go on, he says, um, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Why? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles him. And all these evil things come from within and defile a man. He says, You know, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these things come out of our heart. They don't come out of our stomach. When we know God through Christ, we are free from having to obey dietary laws. You know, the Jews had to obey all these laws because they lived in a different period and it's how God had commanded them to live until the Messiah came. And a lot of it was wisdom, like take your trash outside the city. Don't eat seafood or don't eat pork or these things that, if not cooked properly or refrigerated properly, will kill you. Nowadays, you've got a refrigerator. You can go to the store and get fresh food. It's, it's not a big deal. But again, if someone has a weak conscience in these things, you know, Paul's saying, don't make them stumble. You know, I say, go ahead, eat bacon. Unless, you know, it's like if, if I'm hanging around with a vegetarian or something and they really don't like it all, you know, which I guess doesn't really happen that often, but if it did, I hope that I wouldn't make them stumble with that. Let's go on. Let's read the last four verses here. Uh, or five, if I do my ninth grade math correctly. Um, verse nine. <laughs> but beware, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, your conscience, check this out, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You know, okay, all right, so maybe, maybe we don't have as many food hang-ups these days as we did then. So if that's the case, you know, if it's just about idolatry and it's just about these idols in the market, 
you know, we're probably doing pretty good. I mean, unless you have some friends who are super against uh, eating meat or are super eating meat, you know, you probably get into those conversations. So it is applicable there, but I'm sure it has more meaning. So if that's the case, what is this meaning? He says, you have knowledge that those who are known for being believers or leaders, you know, you who have knowledge, all of us in here at least have knowledge of what 1 Corinthians chapter 8 says because we just read it. So we all now have this knowledge. And because of that, we are all held accountable for this knowledge. When we st- This is heavy, but when we stand before God, he's going to say, you knew what 1 Corinthians 8 says. I can hold you accountable to it. And now that's not like trying to hold it over your head like a pop quiz is coming. But sincerely, we all have this knowledge. But further than that, if we're believers and we have knowledge of God and we have knowledge of what God's commands are for what's right and wrong, for what God's commands are for what's pure and holy, for what things should be in a believer's life versus what things should not be in a believer's life, um, you know, people are going to look on and say, hey, you're a believer, or hey, they've been a believer 10 years, or they're in the worship team, or they're in the pulpit, or they're serving, or they're in children's ministry. So automatically, if you're a believer, people assume you believe in God. And I think a lot of people in our society have at least some basic knowledge of what the Bible says, you know, because they'll say, don't judge me. Or they'll say the Bible condemns that, you know, and how archaic is the Bible for not allowing that. And with that knowledge, you know, that's really where your conscience comes into place because the conscience, it's uh, con and science. It's with knowledge. It means with knowledge. Your conscience is when you know something. And your conscience is also something that God has given you as sort of a warning, a warning signal that we'll look at. You know, it's sort of this indwelt alarm, you know, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us spiritually and directs us and guides us. But God's also given us this fleshly Holy Spirit, if you will, that really kind of says, hey, what you're doing is wrong. You know, I was listening to a message the other day, um, and he was bringing up the point about um, probably, you know, the first time you sinned or, you know, we, no, who really remembers that? But, you know, maybe the first time you went out drinking or the first time you smoked or the first time you went out and were doing uh, something you shouldn't do. You know, somewhere in your conscience, you, you know, it was saying, this is wrong. You know, this is wrong. Mom told me not to do this or dad told me not to do this or this is wrong. and I'm still going to do it. Or maybe even you heard God say to you, don't do this. This is bad. This is not good for you. But you went ahead and did it anyway because you didn't have that relationship with God or you were more concerned about what your friends thought or, or whatever the case was. But we have knowledge. So if, if we have knowledge and again, our lives should match up to it. Other believers and other people are going to look on to that. You know, I can remember first getting saved and going over uh, some friends' houses I just met who are believers, and they were watching this one movie, and I was like, you guys are watching this movie? How can you watch this movie? You guys are Christians, aren't you? Should we not be able to do Oh, You know, my mind was fried, even, you know, a little less than it is now. But there more, you know, there we go. And so as a new believer, my conscience was very sensitive because I had come out of such craziness, God really woke in my conscience again and it was very like I need to figure out what's right and what's wrong and isn't this wrong because it has this appearance to it and maybe it is and you know and as I matured I could see that there was nothing you know not that I'm mature or anything but that there's nothing really wrong with that movie that I was talking about I won't get into it but um you know in a sense they were it's this situation here hey I just came out of the world isn't that thing shouldn't we watch it and you know just like shouldn't we eat this meat because it was just at the you know, the market, you know, is the same sort of scenario there. And again, this idea of if we have a holy standard to live up to, 
we need to live up to that holy standard. Now, that doesn't mean legalist. You know, we had a good conversation at Guy's study last night at my house about legalism and self-discipline and uh, and being in love. It's sort of like, um, what did I say, James? I don't remember. <laughs> what are we talking about? But anyway, it was really like, you know, if you love someone, you get to do it. You know, if it's self-discipline, I'm not going to do it. Like, oh, I probably shouldn't have that second, you know, donut. That's self-discipline. You know, first, real self-discipline would say, I'm not going anywhere near the donuts. But, <laughs> you know, we get a little lax there. But love says, you know, I get to do this thing, or I get to hang out with my wife, or I get to hang out with my daughter. Um, and the law says, I shouldn't do these things. Like, I shouldn't speed, or you should not murder. Now, is obeying the law that says should not murder legalism? No, it's just simply obeying the law. Legalism, in a sense, says it takes my own self-righteous standards and now places it on you where I have this own standard in my life where I won't eat McDonald's. Um, I shouldn't. But you know, if I had that law where I don't eat McDonald's and you eat McDonald's, legalism judges. It says you're eating McDonald's and, and you're a lesser person because I have this law that I abide, that I follow, that you don't. That's legalism. But just not doing something that you shouldn't do or saying to people, don't do this thing that you shouldn't do because it's a law, is not legalism. Legalism is holding people up to a higher standard. It's holding up people to a self-righteous standard. But if we have this knowledge of what's right and what's wrong, we should follow what's right and wrong. Even if we know that we have this liberty to do it, like eat the meat in the market or watch this movie, if there's someone around us who's going to be stumbled by that, we should not do it. We should not do it. You know, I have certain friends who don't watch TV. I watch a little bit of TV, and after a while, I'm like, this is really lame. There's only two channels I can watch, so I turn it off. I don't really struggle with it. But I have some friends who struggle with it. So when they're around, I won't talk about TV shows that I watch, or I won't turn on the TV. Now, does that make me a hypocrite? No, because if they ask me, I'll say, yeah, I watch TV. I have no problem with it. But I'm not going to make them stumble. I'm not going to make them give them a little taste of TV so they go home and they buy cable or whatever because, you know, I cause them to stumble. And that's really the case is that with our liberties, there needs to be priority. We need to have priority of liberty. You know, just because we're free to do things in Christ, if we're really free to do them, doesn't mean we have to do them. You know, if you're free to do whatever it is, you know, if you're free to get a tattoo, if God hasn't told you, hey, it's wrong for you to get a tattoo, doesn't mean you have to get a tattoo. If you have to get a tattoo, it's probably an idol telling you, you have to get this to beat some standard. Now, I personally can't get any tattoos. It's not that like you know I would be afraid of it. I, I kind of think in some sense that it would be cool. But I know for myself, with my relationship with the Lord, the Lord has said, that's not something for you. you know, and For whatever reason, that's what he has to call in my life. Now, we'll touch on a real touchy one, alcohol. You know, the Bible says, the Bible doesn't say anywhere that it's wrong to drink. Right. But the Bible says that it's wrong to be drunk. So where in your life as a believer is that line? You know, and what really is drunk? You know, what re- is buzz drunk? Yeah, I, I'd say that what you feel today is what we call buzz is drunk. I remember being buzzed and I was drunk, you know. It's stupid. You know, the stuff makes you dumb. It makes you so dumb. Especially pot. Pot makes you real dumb. So if you're smoking pot, stop. It's in the Bible. I'll tell you. Seriously. If you're a Christian, stop. If you're an unbeliever, come to Jesus. He'll take it away. But my point is, is that these things, even if you have the liberty, say the Bible doesn't say that I can't drink. Even if you have that liberty, why do you have to? 
Why do you have to? Now, is it wrong if you do? I don't know. Ask the Lord. For me, it is because I see verses like it's not good for kings, O Lemuel, to drink strong drink. It's not for kings to drink wine because it'll pervert justice. And it's also, it also talks about pastors not be given, and leaders being not given to wine. And so for me, the Lord had that standard on my life way before, probably just because I was a drunk and a pothead before I got saved. And so God had to do these sharp things in my life to keep me away from it. Now, are these things that we can live without? Sure. You know, if you want to go home and have a beer, go ahead. I just encourage you. Why? What's the point? What's the point? Especially, you know, especially given the light society, in the light of society, you know, things are going on. You know, would you trip a friend? You know, your friends, maybe April Fool's is coming up, you know, a coworker sent around a list of pranks. Uh, so it's like, you, they were really good, but I was like, now I have ideas. But, uh, <laughs> you know, would you really trip your friend? You know, probably not. You know, it was that little trick where one guy lays on the ground and you push him over. That's not really nice. You know, would you trip a baby? I hope not. If you trip my baby, we're going to have problems. <laughs> Lots of them. And if I, like, I think I, it tripped me the other day on the carpet. I was like, oh, sorry. You know, I had problems with myself. So if you do it, we're in real trouble. But Mia has just started, you know, she's been walking now. She's running around now. So if I tripped her, that'd be really brutal. Now, if you have a young believer, a baby believer who just started walking with God, we need to be really careful not to trip them up. Because if, if they've just been freed from something, from some sin that they were bound to, and now that they're free from it, and maybe they struggle with the temptation, or they're not really sure how to handle it or how to get away from it, and they come around you, mature one, who has this liberty to do something, and yet when you're around them, you say, oh, it's fine to drink. The Bible doesn't say anything about it. And they go, oh. And their conscience is going off. But they hear this believer, this one who has knowledge, saying it's okay. They go, all right. And then they have a drink, and then they have two, and then they're drunk, and then they're backslidden, and you don't see them anymore because they were tripped up, because they were stumbled. So you, oh mature one, your liberty has now caused an offense. You know, I'd say, you know, I'm sure all of us have done something, you know, maybe not that horrible in a sense, but something to trip up other people's. But we need to be careful, because what do we see before? That we need to esteem others better than ourselves. You know, do we love that beer more than our friend at dinner who struggles with it? You know, if you like that beer that much, just drink it later. You know, or you like that TV show, just watch it tomorrow, TiVo it, whatever. But on the flip side, we don't want to lay burdens on people either. We don't want to force freedoms on them too. You know, just like you don't want to be legalist and say, hey, you can't do these things that aren't necessarily what the scripture says. Like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, don't drink. You know, you can't drink. I'm going to say, you probably might want to think about it. But in the same way, I'm not going to give you the liberty and say, hey, this TV show that I watch, everybody should watch it. You know, or this movie that... I think is acceptable. Everybody should watch it. You know, for me, I can't listen to secular music. Uh, Jay and I were talking today about music I listen to, and I was I was telling them I listen to some old bands on Spotify, and it's like some of them I can and some of them I can't. And even after a little while, it's like I just feel like, ugh, let me just go listen to some Christian music. Because for whatever reason, God said this just isn't for you, you know? I mean, who really wants to have that song stuck in your head all day anyway? You know, I won't give you a song to get stuck in there, don't worry. Has anyone been to England or to Europe? I was there on a four-hour layover, so I don't know if that counts. <laughs> but they have this saying called, mind the gap. Mind the gap, like in the subway where right next to that little yellow line, it says, mind the gap. Because one, the train could hit you. Two, people have to get off. Or really, the real number one is, don't cross it because you'll touch the third rail and die. You know, or get eaten by rats if you're in New York City. 
But if we take this picture and we say, mind the conscience, mind the conscience, whether it's someone else's conscience who you know that there's a line painted there, don't cross it. Or if you have a conscience, I hope you have a conscience. If not, we should talk. But no, we shouldn't talk because I don't want to be in a room alone with you. But <laughs> Sorry, it's funny. In my book. But um, sincerely, you know, we don't want to, the Bible talks about searing your conscience where you have a conscience and God has given you a conscience to stay away from danger, to stay away from things that are wrong, that you know are wrong. But when we go ahead and, and step over that line, you go, oh, I stepped over the line. I didn't mind the gap and nothing happened. And then you step down in the trench. You're like, oh, I'm in the trench and nothing's happened to me. Look at me. I'm in the trench. You know? And then you start walking on the rail. And then you get stuck in the rail. And a train comes. And you're trying to get out. And no one's around. Or I don't know. This story's not really going anywhere other than the fact that you've now seed your conscience. And you've put yourself in a place of danger. And you keep playing around with it, like the Bible says, can a man take fire into his lap and not be burned? You will get burned. You know, your conscience will be seared. And, you know, it talks about, the Bible talks about believers who turn away from the living God. And in a sense, they really sear their conscience. They turn their back on God. And it says how hard it is for them to be renewed again to repentance. You know, not to mess around with sin. You know, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't sear your conscience and you won't have anything to worry about. But when we start playing around these areas of, liberty or areas that we know are just outside the lawn of liberty, we get in trouble, you know, to a point where death can happen. You know, the Bible says to, um, you know, to pray for people when we see them in sin. Or, uh, you know, it also says that if you see someone in a sin leading unto death, it says, don't pray for them. What? I'm not going to pray for someone in sin? No, basically, like, get off your knees and go get them off the tracks. You know, it's like if we're believers... We need to watch out for those with consciences or have gone across their conscience, but also we need to make sure that our own consciences haven't gone back. You know, we need to stay inside those lines because it's safe. You know, Colossians 2 says, So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are the shadow of the things to come, but the substances of Christ. Again, there's this whole idea in the church or in certain circles that go back to these old rituals that the Jews did or the old rituals that like the medieval dead church did. And I go, why would you want to do that? You know, I can understand wanting to go see what the Jews did and you know, maybe glean some stuff. But really, Passover is fulfilled in communion. And that's the only feast that we need to keep is Passover. Because when we go to heaven, that's it. And all these things are really a picture of Christ to come anyway. But for the church that wants to go back to the practices of the medieval church, says, hey, the church has lost its way. Let's go back to the medieval church and do all these emergent things and walk around in labyrinths and do just foolish stuff that's not in the Bible. I say, go back a little bit further. Go back to Acts. When they read the Bible, when they evangelized, when they fellowshiped, and when they worshiped, and when they ate bread together. But again, tattoos, food, clothing, music, movies, etc., these are certainly some aspects of each that should be avoided. I mean, if you really want to get a tattoo, you're probably not going to want to get the one with the big old dragon wings on it. You know, maybe you'll just get Jesus on your back because you have to get a Christian tattoo if you're a Christian, right? (laughs) Or the t-shirt or whatever. But, you know, be sensitive to conscience. You know, there's other things that people have issue with that I don't have problem with. Like, that doesn't make it wrong for them to do it just because it's wrong for me to do it. Things that are gray areas like certain music, certain bands, certain TV shows that don't have things in here that really, you know, that aren't in here. You know, I'd say it's probably a lot harder these days to find stuff that's pure in the world. You know, you're you're not really going to find anything that's totally pure. 
But again, knowledge applied correctly is wisdom. You know, our examples as believers obviously needs to be built up by knowledge, needs to be founded on the knowledge of God and his word, but it really needs to be built out in love. We need to know God, we need to know his commandments, and we need to love God, and we need to keep his commandments. And what did you say? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, conscience is important, but it's with knowledge. You know, when we wound others, like we said before, we're really directly sinning against God. So if we say that we love God, but we don't love others, if we've hurt someone else and we say that we love God, you know, there's a problem there. You know, if you have a problem with someone or they have a problem with you, we need to deal with it. You need to go with them. You need to talk to them because, you know, just like it says, if you come to worship God and you know your brother has something against you, God says, put your offering down. Go and deal with it. Then come back and bring your offering. Because God's going, you have your hands raised. You brought your tithe in. But Johnny in the back is really offended because you owe him a lot of money. And he needs to pay his bills. I don't want that. Or, you know, whatever the case may be. And one last point about conscience is that children, just like young believers, have sensitive consciousnesses. You know, I think I've heard it said that children need to be told there is no God. You know, no child on his own is going to come to that conclusion until someone tells him. And Jesus says in Mark nine forty two, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's death by mob. You know, that's like, Jesus, did you hang out in New Jersey a little bit with that one? You know, seriously, God cares about kids. And especially kids who believe in God. Like, I know, like, you know, God bless my parents and there's been forgiveness and healing and all that. But sincerely, as a kid, I grew up in the church and guess what? I didn't have a relationship with God yet. I saw my parents' relationship sour. I saw their relationships with the Lord sour. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go do what I want because obviously something's messed up here. And I took it out on God and I left him. But God's grace brought me back. He's brought my family back together. But that doesn't always happen. You know, God takes it very seriously when our adult example hurts children. When children look on and say, I don't want to know God because my dad said he knew God and was this way. You know, that's my biggest burden with Mia is that she would come to know the Lord and that my life wouldn't hinder her from coming to know him. But now on a little lighter note as we close here, you know, one of the hardest verses in the Bible for me, um, you know, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So I hope none of you stumble over meat, because meat's pretty good in my book. (laughs) But sincerely, you know, what a small sacrifice to make to pass up on five guys for the rest of your life. If it means... (laughs) Man, that bag, you can like see through it, it's so greasy. But, uh, you know, what a real small sacrifice to make to give up that TV show or give up whatever it is that might make your brother stumble or your children stumble or your spouse stumble or the people you love stumble. You know, uh, the Bible says that it's worse than unbeliever if we don't take care of the people in our family. You know, Romans 12 one says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living, sacri- living sacrifice. You know, God doesn't want you to be a suicide bomber. He wants you to be a living sacrifice. And how do you do that? Not by strapping bombs to your chest, but by giving up on things that are wrong, by obeying the commandments, and by being free to not even exercise our freedoms. Holy, acceptable to God, which is what? Your reasonable service. 
it's not unreasonable for God to ask us to do these things. If this was a God who was unloving, who never came to earth, who never showed us that he loved us or that he was willing to die for us, yeah, I'd say this is pretty unreasonable. It's a pretty unreasonable request, you know? Um, you know, if I never went to work and I asked my daughter to do all the chores and I, you know, never paid her any allowance, that'd be pretty unreasonable because as a dad, my job is to go out and support my family, you know, one way or another. In the same way, you know, when God asks us to do something, in the light of like the, all the songs we sung tonight about the cross and about what Jesus did for us there, he forgave us all our sin, how he gave us a way to know God and go to heaven and be freed from those idols that we were chained to, from drugs, from alcohol, from sex, from whatever it is that we were stuck to before the Lord. Is it really a big deal to go to church on Sunday? To go to church on Wednesday? To say, hey, let me take five minutes with the Lord and say, hey, God, is there something in my life that you don't want there? Do you really, you know, when the Lord's pricking our heart saying, hey, give this up or don't do that or do that, is it really a big sacrifice not to do it anymore? I mean, it's not saying it's going to be easy or fun or a struggle, but what I'm saying is, you know, is it really unreasonable to God to, for God to ask us to do anything really? You know, and I think that that's my biggest problem, saying, God, that's unreasonable. My biggest problem is really submitting my will to his, you know. I think that's all of our problem. But tonight, you know, seeing that God has, um, you know, made a way for us to come to him so easily, where we don't have to go through the rigmarole of worshiping idols or bringing a certain dollar amount to him or, or doing anything really to be on his good side other than say, God, Jesus did everything for me. You know, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and, and that's all I have, God. You're all I need. You know, if that's you tonight, if you, if you don't know the Lord, you know, we're going to pray in a minute here. If you don't know Jesus, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to stand. If you don't know him, just stand, and I'm going to lead you in a very simple prayer. It's going to go something like this. Lord Jesus, I confess that you're God, and I need you to forgive me my sins. Thank you, brother. And that... You're the only way to God. I need you to free me and heal me. And I'm going to pray for you. If there's anyone else, you can stand now or when we pray. And um, after that, I'm going to give you an opportunity if, if you know God and if there's things that God's calling you to give up that you've been struggling with, you know, I'll be standing. I'll be standing with that one too. But um, I just encourage you just to stand. And I'm not, no one's going to look around. I ask that everyone's eyes are, are closed and um, whatever, just to do it unto the Lord. But if you have done it, and, and if you have accepted the Lord tonight, come see me or one of the other uh, leaders here. Or if you need to talk to a, a, an elder or a deacon or a pastor or just a friend around you tonight about something the Lord's laid in your heart, do it. Because this is what it's about. Church isn't just coming to offer a sacrifice to an idol and not be changed and go home and be no different. It's to come here and get radioactive and rub off on others and be there for others. So, Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for that freedom. That, God, we have the freedom even to just show up in this building. And that, God, you've given us the freedom to hear your word and have a bunch of Bibles. And, God, I thank you that you allowed me to, to share your word tonight, God. I pray that your word would be the one that sticks and, and not mine. And I thank you for everyone here. And, Lord, for uh, the brothers stood. And if anyone else wants to come to know the Lord tonight, who wants to be free from sin and idolatry, just stand now before the Lord. Just stand. Thank you. If there's anyone else, just stand. Thank you. And I'm going to pray this prayer, and I ask that you would pray with me, because the Bible says that 
to be saved, you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that the, Jesus is the Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. So just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me and for taking all my sin on the cross. Please forgive me. Please make me a believer and give me new life. Help me to follow you and trust you and love you and those around me. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've done that, that's all there is. Not even those words, but that's all there is. It's just believing in God and who he says he is. But if you're a believer tonight and and there's something that's on your heart or something you've been struggling with, I encourage you just to stand, just to stand, and I'll pray for you. So, Father, I just thank you, God, that uh, as we stand, and and God, I stand too, that uh, we need you in all things, Lord, that if there's something that you've been ministering to us lately or our conscience has been seared, I pray that you would unsear it, God, that you would cut through the callous in our heart and our mind and help us to love each other, help us to get up in the morning, help us to share with others and to put away the evil things and put on um, the good things, Lord. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight. I thank you for them. And I pray, God, you'd fill us and minister to us as we go. And in your name, Jesus. And be with Tony and give him rest and sleep. And may we uh, just spend time with him on Sunday in church. In Jesus' name, amen.